For more than two decades, the ten brothers had lived with the fear that their sin would be exposed. And even though their crime had happened about two decades earlier, they lived with it as if it were yesterday. On any given day, all it would take was one thing to expose their sin. Perhaps one of the guilt-riddled brothers would confess. Maybe someone traveling up from Egypt would say that they had seen their brother in slavery. Or maybe Joseph himself, somehow freed from slavery, would come home and expose the brothers' lies. Their lives would be ruined. Everything they had done and said for the previous 20 years would now be seen in a new and completely terrible light. Their wives, their children, their beloved father Jacob, everyone would know. You can imagine the questions they would be asked. How could you possibly sell your own brother into slavery? He was only 17 years old. How could you lie for all of these years? How could you leave him in slavery that long? How could you break your father's heart like that? How can you live with yourself? And that's the dilemma that Joseph's brothers found themselves in, as recorded in Genesis 37 through 50. Some of you can relate. There is something in your past that you cannot shake. It's like a, a wound that won't heal, a stain that won't come clean. No matter what you've done, it has changed your life ever since. Some of you, by the grace of God, don't have anything like that in your life. But you may be on a path right now where one of those decisions or a series of decisions that you will forever regret is in your future. Joseph's brothers brought this upon themselves because they refused to trust in God's sovereign plan. And they took matters into their own hands. And so it's a warning for all of us. We've been studying the life of Joseph, which is a story about God's sovereign control over all things. Simply put, God is in control, not you, not me. And when we live in light of that truth, what Pastor Steve last week called delightful trust, then we find ourselves showered with God's blessings even in difficult times. Peace, contentment, freedom, and joy. But when we refuse to trust in the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and insist on doing things our way, we will pay a price, always, without fail. Instead, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to joyfully affirm the truth of Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And praise God that whatever he pleases to do is in our eternal best interest. Now, our passage this morning tells us through the life of Jacob and his sons how you and I should interact with the sovereignty of God. And it is so critical for us to grasp this because so much of our faithlessness as Christians can be tied to the fact that we are not trusting that God is in control. So stories like this tell us a lot about the Lord. It tells us how he deals with his people. How does he lead us? How does he discipline us? How does he use us for his glory? How does he fulfill his promises? And from this story... And from other stories in God's Word, we learn that God ordains that His children will suffer the consequences of sin. Sometimes their own sin, sometimes the sin of others against them. So being enslaved 
being unjustly imprisoned for years is not outside of the realm of possibility for God's children even when they are faithful. It is possible with a heavenly father that that is his plan for you. And unless you and I grasp that, when something bad happens to you, it will be far more difficult for you to trust the Lord. To avoid that, and to have a delightful trust in God's sovereignty, you and I need to know the Lord in our lives. We need to know him personally. But we also need to know how he has revealed himself in his word. And our passage this morning is Genesis chapter 42. Open your Bibles on your phone, your tablet, whatever it is. You may actually have a printed Bible. There's a one in the seat back in front of you, the blue one. It's on page 35. We have to cover a lot of material in a relatively short period of time. So I think having your Bible open in front of you will be very helpful. Also, I would suggest putting on your seatbelts. Let me bring you up to speed. Jacob is the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, whom God called to be the father of the Hebrews, the chosen people, and gave the promised land. Unfortunately, it was one messed up family, with each generation seemingly trying to outdo the previous generation in disobedience to God. Jacob had deceived his father and stolen his brother Esau's birthright. He, in turn, was deceived by his father-in-law who gave him the wrong sister to marry. It's a weird story. It's all there in Genesis 29. You can get the details. Jacob winds up marrying both sisters, Leah and Rachel, along with their servants for a total of four wives. But Jacob loved Rachel the most. Jacob had a big, a big problem, right? He was uh, the, prone to the problem of favoritism, even though in his life he had experienced the dark side of it. So he loved Rachel's two sons more than all the rest of his sons. So Joseph and Benjamin were his favorites. God gave Joseph two prophetic dreams, telling him that in the future at some point, your family will bow down to you. Understandably, they didn't care much for his dreams. So his brothers decided the best way to stop the dreams was to kill the dreamer. In the end, they decided to make a little bit of money instead, and they sold him to traders who were on their way down to Egypt. During that time, Joseph went from prisoner, well, from slave to prisoner to second in command in all of Egypt. You might say, he has done well. That brings us to our passage in Genesis chapter 42. Let me read the first five verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you sit there looking at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And so this brings us to our first point. Trust in God or live in fear. Trust in God or live in fear. Now, the end of the previous chapter tells us that the famine was severe over all the earth. And in ancient times, just like in some countries today, famine means death. There aren't other options. If there is no food around, you will die. And Jacob had heard that food could be purchased in Egypt. And that was great news. It might have been far, and it might have been expensive, but in most cases, food is better than no food. But when he looked at his sons, middle-aged men at this time, all they were doing was staring at one another, even though their lives were at risk. They're not doing anything about it. Now, why might that be? 
The passage doesn't tell us, but I think it's because the brothers knew that when they sold their brother Joseph to these traders, that they were heading down to Egypt. And that meant that every time they heard Egypt, they were reminded of what they had done. And they were reminded that their sin could be exposed. So every time they heard that, when they heard that there was food, when they realized that they might have to go down to Egypt to get that food, they must have feared seeing Joseph enslaved or feared that he would see them and call out. So I think they probably just sat there looking at one another, hoping that somebody else would do something. They were paralyzed by fear. But then the command from their father came, go to Egypt, buy food so that we can live and not die. They had no choice. They had to go. No matter how afraid they were of what might happen in Egypt, they had to face the reality of what very well would happen if they didn't go. They and their families would die of starvation. Not all of Jacob's sons went to buy food, the passage tells us. Jacob purposefully withheld Benjamin, Joseph's only full brother, because it says he feared the harm that might come to him on the journey. Now, if Jacob was afraid for his other ten sons, he didn't say. Keep in mind, though, that Benjamin was not a child at this point. He would have been in his 20s, and Jacob was still afraid. In fact, you see fear all over this chapter. It has great influence over Jacob and his sons. Why is that? It's because if God is not in control, then you are living as if no one is or you are. And both of those are reasons to be very afraid. If God is not in control, no one is, or you're living as if you are, and both of those are very good reasons to be afraid. And it's so tragic. It's so unnecessary. And yet you and I would have to confess, even as followers of Christ, that we are guilty of that from time to time. And you know, Jacob had no reason not to trust in the sovereignty of God. God had done so much for him. In fact, consider what Jacob says about the Lord in Genesis 35.3. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make it there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Or look at the incredible promise that he gave to Jacob in Genesis 35. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So here is, here is God blessing not only Jacob, but his descendants as well, even though he was a deceiver. But he didn't trust the Lord at that time. He chose not to follow him. He acted very fearfully. He let circumstances determine how he was going to act. He acted in fear rather than in faith. Because fear focuses on what might happen. But faith focuses on what God can do. And that's why we need to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask, what about you? What about you? What has the Lord, the Lord done for you? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've committed yourself to him, he has saved you. He has brought you from death to life, from darkness to light. So we must not make decisions out of fear, but rather faith in the God who saves us, trusting in his sovereignty as our heavenly father. He can be trusted. But fear can be powerful, can't it? Fear is a real deterrent to trusting the Lord. And at times, we don't end a disobedient or sinful relationship 
because we fear that we'll be alone. We're not generous because we fear we won't have enough. We don't speak up when we should because we're afraid of what might happen. Faith in the sovereignty of our Heavenly Father gives us a boldness that the world needs to see from God's people. Because acting in faith makes God look small and powerless in our lives. That's really what it does. When we act in fear, it makes God look small and powerless in our lives. But when we act in faith, we reveal the power of God to one another and to the world. You know what would have been awesome? It would have been awesome if Jacob had gathered his sons, the ones that were just staring at each other. And if he would have said, sons, you know, we're in a real pickle here. Because that's, that's how they talked back then. <laughs> we're out of food. I'm a huge fan of food. But you know what? God is so good. God has provided food in Egypt so that we can live and not die. Isn't that wonderful of him? So we need to pray. We need to pray right now that you're going to have a safe journey to Egypt and you're going to get more than enough food and you're going to have a safe journey back. Did I mention that you're going to Egypt? That's what he would have said to them. What a wonderful example that would have been to his sons and his grandsons. His confidence that God was in control of all things, including this famine, his delightful trust in that would have been a powerful lesson for his family. But sadly, that's not how he responded. Jacob rejected the blessings of God's sovereignty at that point. And you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, need to be reminded how important it is that we model trust in God. Back to our passage, beginning in verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. The second point is this. Confess your sins or pay the price. Confess your sins or pay the price. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Joseph? How many nights had he stayed up awake wondering if he would ever see his family again? And I imagine he must have prayed over and over again to the Lord and said, why did you give me those dreams? They have cost me nothing but trouble. I was enslaved because of those dreams. I was imprisoned because of those dreams. I don't get it. But now Joseph has begun to see at least part of the plan of God. He has been raised to governor, the second highest position in all of Egypt. And now here were his brothers bowing before him, just like God had said. God had made the seemingly impossible come true. Sometimes we think there's no way God can get out of this situation. It's impossible. But think about God's plans for a moment. God needed to get his people down to Egypt. It's what he had said to Abraham many, many years before. To do so, he used the sin of favoritism 
a couple of dreams, the sins of jealousy and hatred, a wrongful imprisonment, the interpretation of three dreams, and a famine. None of these pieces in and of themselves make any sense. But when you step back and you can see the whole from the end, you realize it is the sovereign hand of God working in the lives of his people. So what does that mean? It means that you can trust him. It means that you can rest in his sovereignty. The parts may not make any sense to us, but the whole absolutely will. God guarantees it. So when Joseph saw his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Over 20 years had passed, he'd grown up, he was dressed in an appearance as an Egyptian. Furthermore, he was speaking through an interpreter. The last place they expected to see their brother Joseph was second in command in all of Egypt. Now, Joseph's actions here can be easily misunderstood, but you have to take the whole story into account. Do you know that Joseph has already put his past in proper perspective? He has put aside the harm that has been done to him. How do we know that? Well, back in chapter 41, God has blessed him with two sons. The first son he names Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Meaning, he remembered it, but he was no longer troubled by it. Because he saw God's bigger picture, which is what you and I need to see. He had a second son. He named him Ephraim. He said, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God had wonderfully blessed Joseph. But Joseph needed to test his brothers. He needed to see what kind of men they were now. Perhaps they were still the kind of jealous and conniving and murderous brothers that we saw 20 years ago. And after all, where was Benjamin? He wasn't with them. And Joseph might have wondered, did they kill him like they tried to kill me? So he accused them of being spies, which is somewhat ironic because that's what they thought he was on behalf of their father Jacob when he was much younger. And the brothers must have been scared out of their minds. Why is he doing this? They denied the charges. They said, no, no, we're, we're not a group of spies. We're a large group of brothers. We're honest men. Not true. They had no idea how, how much he knew. So they answered Joseph's questions about their family, but he still continued to insist that they were spies. And over the next six verses, verses 12 through 17, Joseph carries out his plan. It's very simple. You say you're honest men. You say you have a younger brother. Well, bring him to me. Then I will know if you are telling the truth or not. It's that simple. You have a younger brother? I'm sure Joseph longed to see Benjamin and his father. Probably should have said to them, now make sure this guy brings two forms of identification, like a current utility bill and a passport. Otherwise, I, I, I wonder how would they have, if it wasn't Joseph, how would the guy have known that they were brothers? But that's another story. So Joseph tells them, send one of your brothers back, bring back Benjamin, and I'm going to imprison the rest of you just to make sure you come back. So he puts them in custody for three days, a time to cool off a little bit, see how they're going to respond. Beginning in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so, which probably means they agreed. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul 
when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. On the third day, Joseph changed his mind. He came back to them, said, Now all of you but one can go. I suspect he did that out of compassion for his brothers and their families. After all, one brother going back couldn't have carried enough food for everyone. And obviously he would have been very vulnerable as he traveled. But what he says is interesting. I fear God. And commentators are mixed whether he's, he's saying in a sense, I believe in the Hebrew God, or if he's simply saying, I can be trusted. But one thing's, one thing's clear. Jo- Joseph is acknowledging that God is sovereign and not him. He knew that God was in control. And that is what empowered Joseph to act righteously and faithfully. So after agreeing to Joseph's terms, they speak to one another about the weight of their sin, the sin they've been carrying for over 20 years. And they acknowledge their guilt and how they treated Joseph. And this is so important. They don't sugarcoat it. They tell it as it is. They own it. They acknowledge the hideousness of their sin. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. They're on the right track. They get it. They understand. You know, confession is vital for our relationship with the Lord. It's absolutely vital. Confession, the, uh, the word in the New Testament literally means to say the same thing as. It means that we agree with God about the nature of our sin. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't deny it. We don't minimize it. We don't blame somebody else. We acknowledge how dark and evil and wrong and selfish and perverted it was. But too often we fail to confess our sins, right? We sort of acknowledge our sins, but then we kind of excuse them. It's like, Lord, I'm really sorry I did that, but if you had done this, this, and this, I wouldn't have had to sin, right? Imagine a husband who comes home late for a beautiful dinner, and upon seeing it, he realizes that he forgot his wedding anniversary. Now, he could say, hey, so sorry, babe, won't happen again. Now, is that going to bridge the gap that now exists between the two of them? Not by much. But what if her husband said something along these lines? Sweetheart, I am so sorry that I forgot our anniversary. I can't believe that I have not been planning it for the last few weeks to make this a special day so that you realize how precious and special you are to me. And it breaks my heart that I have communicated to you that my work is more important than you are. And it grieves me that what I have done by not remembering this day, not being prepared for this day, has left you hurt and embarrassed and feeling unloved. I suggest that's going to go a lot further than, sorry, babe, won't happen again. And I'm encouraged by all the men who are taking notes when I said that. (laughs) I will be praying for you, brothers. Some of the most important lessons that you and I need to learn in the Christian life is the importance of truly confessing our sins. So Joseph's brothers 
acknowledge their guilt to one another. Although Reuben, the oldest, decided this was the right time for an I told you so moment. There's always a good time for an I told you so moment. But he acknowledged something very true, that there would be a reckoning for Joseph's blood and that that's what they were experiencing. Do you know what a reckoning is? A reckoning is like an invoice or a bill. It's the price you have to pay. And Joseph's brothers had sinned against him. They had rejected God's sovereign plan. And even though it was more than two decades earlier, the bill had come due. There would be a reckoning for their sin. And they knew it. And you know, that's what sin does. If you don't confess it, you have to live with it. And it eats you up unless you destroy your conscience first. And one day there will be a reckoning for your sin if you do not trust Christ for forgiveness and for salvation. Because the Bible is very clear. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But the consequences of sin in the lives of Christians is serious as well. Unconfessed sin doesn't mean we're rejected by God, doesn't mean we forfeit our salvation, but we will all stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Christians, we must never take sin lightly. Unbeknownst to the brothers, Joseph was not only alive, he was listening to their confession. He was so broken that he had to leave them and cry. He composed himself and returned to his brothers, and he chose Simeon. He would be the one to stay back. We don't know exactly why, but it's quite possible. Reuben was the oldest. He had just basically said, this wasn't my fault, and nobody seemed to rebut that. Simeon was the second oldest and would have been the most responsible. And so that's probably why Joseph bound him, and he bound him before their eyes. It would be something they would not forget. And it should have drawn attention in their minds back to seeing Joseph bound. And it should have provided them with all the incentive they needed to return for Simeon with their bro brother Benjamin. Joseph then had their bags filled with grain, gave them food for the journey, secretly returned all the money the brothers had paid for the grain. We continue in verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Wow. The brothers leave Egypt bound for home in Canaan. I stopped to rest one night. One of the brothers finds his money has been put back in his sack. Now that's a good day. That's a good day for me. I buy something, my money's still there. Right? I'm working on my credit card statement. There are charges. Never got charged for them. That's a good day. But that's not how they responded. I mean, listen to how they responded. Listen, this is, this is the guilt that they have. It says their hearts failed them. That's like when you, when you can't breathe. You're just like, you see something, or you're worried about something, and you can't breathe. They turned trembling to one another, and they asked, what is this that God has done to us? Now they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Have you ever been so afraid that your sin would be exposed, or by God's response to your sin, that that's a description of how you felt? The truth is, you either confess your sin, or you will pay the price. 
And one of the prices that you will pay is a loss of intimacy with God. Temporarily, if you are born again, permanently if you are not. Isaiah 59, 2 says this about our sin. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Some people don't even notice. And when this happens, instead of trusting that God is for you, now you believe that God is against you, even when he is blessing you. Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Confess your sin while there is still time to do so. You know, the gospel is good news because we're all sinners and we all need to be forgiven. And apart from the forgiveness that only comes by faith in Christ, every one of us is on a path that ultimately leads to hell, eternal separation from God. The Bible screams the truth of this. This is not a side issue in God's word. It is very, very clear. If you and I reject the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ, then we will bear the weight of our sin for all of eternity. There is no more sober thought. And it will happen even if you choose to ignore it. There is a reckoning coming. Are you ready? The third point is this. Receive God's provision or take your chances. Receive God's provision or take your chances. And so Joseph's brothers returned to their father and they told him everything that happened. We went down to Egypt, Dad. Your idea, not a good idea. The man charged us, accused us of being spies. So we explained, no, 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 we're 12 brothers. One's back here, one is no more. But he didn't believe us. And then they told Jacob the words he was probably most afraid to hear. Unless we bring Benjamin back with us, we will not be able to return and buy food. We will die. And he's kept Simeon in prison unless we return with him. And Jacob was devastated. Absolutely devastated. But things were about to appear worse. Look at verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All of this has come against me. Once again, they were afraid. What is actually a blessing from the Lord is seen as a trap and a potential disaster because they failed to trust that God is in control. And Jacob then recounts the loss of Joseph and lays the blame at his son's feet, even though there's no evidence that he knew what they had done to Joseph. His attitude is best seen in the words, all this has come against me. Woe is me. Everything is against me. When in fact, Joseph was alive and well. Simeon was alive. And Benjamin was going to turn out to be just fine. There was nothing against him. He just needed to trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of his heavenly father. Verse 37 says this, Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. It's hard to know exactly what was going through Reuben's mind here. It's unlikely he thought that Jacob would be comforted if he could kill his two grandsons if Benjamin didn't come back. I think he's responding in anger. I think he's saying to his father, if my life is so worthless to you, if I don't bring back your precious Benjamin, kill my two sons because they won't be alive anyway. 
And if that's what he was thinking, he read his father correctly because listen to what verse 38 says. Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with, with sorrow to Sheol. End of my life. I, I want to tread very carefully here because most of us, even though we live in a broken world, by God's grace, we have never lost a child. And some of you have. And some of you may be thinking, I get it. I get why he wouldn't do that. And I don't want to minimize his pain or your pain in any way, but here's the point. If the saving love of God is not powerful enough to see us through the death of a loved one, even the death of a child, then what good is it in a world where we lose our loved ones, even children? If his sovereign love is not good enough in a world where we lose children, we lose loved ones, then what good is it? Because this is the world that we live in. But it is. It is good enough. It is sufficient. Remember the words of Job after he lost his ten children. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now don't hear that. Don't hear Job's proclamation of trust in the Lord as as a, a hammer beating you down and say, that's what you have to believe. Hear it as a gracious promise that that is where you can be. That is where I can be by trusting in God. The Holy Spirit can bring that about in our lives. What it really is, it's the working out of the truth of Psalm 63.3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Not only my life, the life of everyone I love. Look at what the Lord graciously provided for Jacob and his family. He provided the food they needed to stay alive. He gave the brothers extra food for their journey. He returned all of their money. He gave them a relatively easy way to prove they weren't spies and thus to be able to trade in the land so that the famine would not kill them. He even gave them the incentive to go back by finding Simeon. But Jacob didn't receive God's promises with thanksgiving. He didn't entrust himself and Benjamin to the Lord. Instead, he decided to take his chances. By so doing, he risked the lives of all of his family members. He prolonged Simeon's suffering and everyone's anxiety about the famine, all because he didn't trust in the sovereignty of his good heavenly father. What a shame. So let me ask you in closing, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of that is hindering you from trusting in the sovereignty of your heavenly father, that he is in control of all things? Maybe you're afraid for your children or for your future or your finances. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of some sin but you're not willing to let it go? Maybe a new sin, maybe an old sin. Is God providing you with something but that's not what you want? So you'll take your chances doing it your own way. There are all kinds of temptations not to trust in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we think our fear is simply too much. Our pain or our guilt is too great. My desires for things of this world is too strong. My friends, do not reject the sovereignty of God or the blessings of trusting in him. The cost is far greater than you think. Jacob was unwilling to risk the life of his favorite son to save his entire family. Our father gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
And if he did not spare his own son, he will give us everything we need for life and godliness. And in him we can trust. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that even as your people, those who have been saved, you have done great things for us, but we confess that from time to time, we do not delightfully trust in the fact that you are controlling all things. And so, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness and pray that your word today and your word as we take it in regularly will help us to see that you are worthy of our trust and nothing, nothing less. And for those who are here this morning who have never placed their faith in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would so move in their hearts that they would see their sin and their, their need for a Savior. Father, even open their eyes to their eternal destiny apart from you, eternally separated in hell. Lord, open our eyes to see that before it is too late. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.